Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You're listening to John Anderson Direct, featuring Seth Dillon. Seth, thanks so very much for joining us uh, from Florida and the United States. I'm in Sydney, Australia. Uh, Babylon B, can you tell us something about how long you've been going, your enormous reach, I gather you're uh, probably one of the most widely reached satirical sites on the whole of the internet. Those not familiar with it, including in our country, tell us a bit about it. Hmm. Yeah. Um the bee's been around since 2016, um, so and I've been running it since 2018. Uh, I got involved. Initially, I wanted to invest in it because I saw it kind of starting to gain some traction and go viral a little bit. And uh, but the guy that was running it wanted to sell it, so we ended up working out a deal. When when his other deal, he had some other buyer, and it ended up falling through. And so he called me back and was like, "Hey, I don't want an investor. I want to. I want a buyer. I want to sell this thing." So. I took it over in 2018 when it was just a two-man operation, um, and now we've grown it into the world's most popular satire site. We've actually, if you've heard of The Onion, The Onion is kind of the other popular one here that's, um, that does you know, political news satire from more of a leftist perspective, and we're more of the conservative perspective. Um, but we've now passed them in reach and engagement, so we get tens of millions of monthly page views. We have millions of followers on social media. We run into some censorship problems on social media, which I'm sure we might get into. But we might. Yeah. Um, but we continue to have a lot of reach and a lot of impact, and it's just satire. News satire is basically adopting the voice of a news publication, but using the 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 methodology of satire to make a point. So you're basically exaggerating the truth to make a point. You're using humor and irony and sarcasm, um, and so we've been doing that successfully now since yeah 2016 growing crazily. Sounds like you do have enormous reach and I've noticed online that you have written material, what appear to be news articles as you say, uh, hyped up a bit to really make a point. Any good speaker knows that you need to emphasise things in certain ways to get a message over sometimes. Uh, and then you've got uh, your online material and you're reaching as you say many many people. Yeah, yeah well we are, yeah we're, we're a primarily we're an online publication, um, mostly uh, the website. You know, we publish our articles on the website, we publish them on social media, uh, and then we also dabble in some video. We do some video comedy sketches and stuff on YouTube. So um, that's pretty much it. So it's, I mean, it's, it's fun, but it's also, you know, it's tough because we're living in kind of insane times right now. So when, you're, when your job is to exaggerate the truth to make a point, I think the truth is already pretty exaggerated on its own. So reality is reality's gotten a little crazy and it's hard to stay a step ahead of it. Well, Malcolm Muggridge, way back in the 1960s and 70s in Great Britain, was saying you can't do humour anymore because fact has become weirder and stranger yeah. and more outlandish yeah. than fiction could ever be. 
But can I'll you... go further back than that. G.K. Chesterton said in 1911, the world has become too absurd to be satirized. He said that in 1911. <laughs> well, there you go. And well, he was brilliant with his use of satire. Um, so yeah. yours, though, is, is, is plainly uh, of a Christian nature. Uh, so give us a feel. You obviously are a believer uh, and you're wanting to challenge people to think clearly about Christian faith. Is that the objective in the end? It's part of the objective. I mean, yeah, we are we are a uh, a Christian satire site, which basically means we're we're run by Christians with a Christian worldview behind how we think and the messages that we're trying to communicate. So, um, that means we do a lot of jokes about the church itself. We do a lot of self-deprecating humor. So we're addressing a lot of the issues that we see in our own religion, our own Christian culture. Um, but it also means that we're addressing the issues of the day in the broader culture and the political policy stuff um, from a from a uniquely Christian perspective. Um, so that's kind of uh, it's unusual here when when you're looking at comedy. Most comedy is being done from a very secular, progressive perspective in the United States. So um, anytime you have a voice like ours in the mix, it's kind of unusual to hear comedy being done from that angle. Um, but yeah, we are, we are, it's it, basically the philosophy is this, you know, C.S. Lewis once said, and I'll paraphrase him slightly. He said that we don't need more good Christian books. We don't need more Christian books. We need more good books written by Christians. And it's kind of a subtle but significant distinction. What he's saying is we need Christians who are out there doing great art, great entertainment, um, with their Christianity kind of latent, it's not leading with it. It's it's under the surface and it's it's riding underneath everything that they're doing. So it's not beating you over the head with that message, but but it's grounded and rooted in in Christian values and principles. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. We might come back to that in a moment because it seems that uh, not only does the progressive left dominate art uh, and and drama and so forth, uh, but it also seems uh, that. Um, you know that Christians talk about beauty and so forth, but they don't do it much. But we'll come back to that yeah. uh, in a moment. <laughs> how does, in your view, just just give us a bit better feel? How does Christianity affect the approach to humour for you and your team? How does it shape your humour? Would you say? Uh, well, I guess in a couple of ways. We're not, we don't do really crass and vulgar jokes. Yep. Um, but humour, I I view humour as a vehicle for truth delivery. So. You know, it's not just entertaining. I think com I think when you when we say things like, "Oh, that's funny because it's true," the reason we say that is because that's that's exactly why we we're, we're we're throwing our head back and laughing at a joke is because it's communicating something true, sometimes at our own expense. Um, and so, as a hu as a vehicle for truth delivery, I think it's you know it's interesting um, from kind of a philosophical or religious perspective to say, okay, well, if we want to. If we want truth to prevail in our culture, what are the best ways of communicating it? Well, there's a lot of ways you can do that. You can argue with people. You can reason with them. You can, you can, um, uh, you can do scholarly work, um, or you can ridicule bad ideas and do it from a humorous perspective and try to tear down the bad ideas and erect the truth in its place with humor and comedy and satire. So, that's been our approach. You raise a very important distinction there. I think you you, you seek to attack bad ideas but you're not seeking to, if you like, pull people down. Whereas it seems to me yeah. a lot of the black humour we see in Australia today from the progressive forces particularly, seems to be designed to tear down things that are good and to tear down people. It's destructive. Yeah, and that's where I would distinguish between, um, you know, comedy that's, that's targeted at the person and tearing down the person versus the ideas, you know, if I could summarize or, or succinctly state what our mission statement is, if we have one, we don't formally have a mission statement. But if we did, it would be something like ridicule bad ideas. Um, so and I and I think there's a moral imperative to that. What you're talking about is if you're if you're tearing people down and bullying them and trying to make them feel bad um, and trying to make them um, miserable, then I, I don't think there's really much good that can come from that. And I don't think that's really easily morally defensible. But I do think that ridiculing bad ideas is morally defensible. In fact, I think that we have a moral imperative to ridicule bad ideas, because if we don't, 
this is one of the things that I say all the time. I, I think that one of the reasons things are so insane and absurd and, and difficult to satirize is because we took bad ideas too seriously in the first place. Yeah. We didn't sufficiently mock them. Our comedians were hands off on it. Everybody was every we have this I don't know if you have this problem over there, but the problem we have here is there is so much pressure on people to be compassionate and tolerant to the point where they tolerate things that that a, that a, a sane and just society should never tolerate. I don't think that the word tolerance means that we should just say anything goes. I think there are places where we need to draw hard lines in the sand and say, no, we're not going to accept that. Um, in fact, I think it would be damaging and destructive if we did. And so, yeah, I, I think it's I, I think it's a moral imperative to mock and ridicule bad ideas, not 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 people to tear them down, but the ideas to to try to deal with them before they uh, manifest their bad effects in society. Though uh, another way I like to put it, I think, which is a is a good way of phrasing, is to is to think of it more like um, satire as being uh, like a scalpel that you would use to cut out social cancers. So you're you are cutting, but for the purpose of healing. You're not cutting for the purpose of wounding. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think it makes absolute sense. Um, you mentioned a moment ago that you will if you like, satirize and highlight some of the inconsistencies and contradictions in, 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 in faith communities and, and churches, uh, which can be very important for highlighting error and uh, counteracting pride. How do yeah. you ensure that it doesn't, uh, if you like, verge on irreverence or sacrilege, even blasphemy, and become destructive? How, how do you ensure that jokes about Christianity don't diminish its importance for the audience? I'll give you an, an example from um, you know the secular world, if you like. I think some of the very clever humour that came out of Britain in the 1960s has tended to make us cynical now uh, about the institutions which are under attack. There was a very famous program called Yes Minister, it then became Yes Prime Minister, satirised the whole political process, and the famous Prime Minister of Great Britain was asked about it one day, did she watch it? She said, oh yes, he said, not only do we watch it, while you think of it as a comedy, uh, we think of it as a documentary. And it sort of confirmed this <laughs> idea that the whole uh, sort of uh, political uh, leadership of the country at the time was pretty farcical. How do we yeah. avoid, when we use humour, being destructive? Well, uh, specifically thinking of uh, 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 the church and, and Christian institutions and doing that as a, as a, as a Christian satire site, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Because you're saying, you know, irreverence and sacrilege or yeah. blasphemy, something like that. It um, can spill well, over very easily into, yeah, in, into yeah. being negative, and that's not what you're trying to do. No, it's not. Um, you know, we want to communicate Christian truth. We don't want to undermine our own faith. I do think, though, that there is, you know, we are all passengers on the ship of fools at times, and so I think that the, the church... Uh, doesn't just need laughter, it needs to take itself less seriously, but it also does have a lot of errors that need correcting, and mockery is is one way to kind of draw attention to those in a in a gentle enough way where it's not aimed at, you know, tearing down the institution itself or 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 showing that it's worthless. i I don't think that if you you know if, I, I think our content, if you look at it, isn't um isn't undermining the Christian church. I think, I think that we're challenging it in a gentle way, um, and that's really the intent. And but it is, you're right. There is there is a fine line there. It's difficult to know sometimes when you might be crossing a line, um, and you have to pay attention to that. Mm. But uh, but the intent is never is never to do that. And and sometimes people will interpret something as being blasphemous or whatever. But they but oftentimes they they're just missing the point of the joke. You know the 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 joke. It, we're never making a joke at Jesus's expense, for example. Um, we might we might mention his name in a joke, but it's at someone else's expense. And so, um, you know, people get confused sometimes and think that you know, anytime you're doing humor on some of these and, and incorporating any any Christian themes or, or referencing God or anything in in your jokes, that you're uh, that you're not taking it seriously. But it's because we take it so seriously that we're joking about it. Because in a sense, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're you you would actually have the objective, I think, of pointing people to the figure of Jesus and saying when, when it really, what really matters is that you do take it seriously. 
Yes, exactly. You, you do take the figure of Christ seriously. Right, right. And so the mockery is aimed at something else that, for whatever reason, isn't taking it seriously enough. Coming to your country, we haven't had anything like the uh, divisions in our society over abortion that America has. I'm just wondering um, how, I think you recently went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Joe Rogan on this issue, and it was very widely covered, went viral, yeah. as the saying is. What, what happened there? What, what, where do you mm. come out on abortion, and, and, and what does it tell us about the, uh, the current cultural landscape in your country? Well, it's a hotly debated topic right now because, you know, we had um, that Roe v. Wade decision that had been precedent and established law for so long, uh, which basically saw that there was some a constitutional right to uh, abortion somewhere buried in the Constitution, but unenumerated. Um, that was finally overturned. So, you know, it's been a big discussion here. Well, what do we do with abortion rights now? Are, do, are there such rights? The states have to make, you know, their own laws. Um, so the, the, the debate continues to rage on here. I don't remember exactly how it came up on Rogan. I'd have to, I have to go back and watch it because it's been a while. It's been about a year since I was on the show. But um, I don't think I raised the topic, but maybe I did. I don't know. Maybe in, in passing mm. I referenced it and then we got stuck in a, in a, in a, locked in a debate for like 20 minutes about it where – I took a hardline position where I argued that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And so I laid out that syllogism to show that this is my position and this is why I think abortion is wrong. And if you want to convince me that it's not, then you've got to refute one of those two premises that lead to that logical conclusion. Which one is it? I, I, I assume that you know, people would agree with me that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent humans. So then the question is, does abortion intentionally kill an innocent human? Uh, I think the answer to that is also yes. But um, Joe and I went back and forth on that, and he, he raised the issue of, you know, uh, cases of teen rape, which is a very, very difficult issue. And he's, he's a father. He's got a teenage daughter. He's like, you don't have the right to tell my daughter that she has to carry her rapist baby. It got very emotional and confrontational um but i but i stuck to my position that you know that that those those extreme circumstances where you know somebody wasn't planning to get pregnant and they're a minor and there's a crime that was committed doesn't refute any of the premise doesn't refute either of the premises in the argument that i gave and so we went kind of back and forth on that a little bit and uh and so it was uh uh i was put on the hot seat let's just say yeah it's, uh, it's an issue in America, or the way it's played out in America is misunderstood around the rest of the world, I think particularly in countries like mine, where the politicians made the decisions and they're accountable to the people, um, mm. whereas in your country, it was not, uh, Roe versus Wade was a decision by the courts, very mm. different. And now it's been, the, de the essential decision out of Roe versus Wade being overturned I, as I understand, was to return the decision-making to the politicians who are accountable to the people, whereas the lawyers are not. Yeah. And I think that's been misunderstood in countries like mine, the nature of mm. the decision and what it really meant. But uh, anyway, to, uh, to yeah. move on. Oh, no. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you know, the, 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 example, the, the conversation with Joe was interesting because he goes to that hard case. And this is a, it's a tough conversation. Abortion is a very, a very difficult conversation to have. Um, but, you know, it, I don't think that you can defend just general abortion on demand for any reason or no reason by pointing to those hard cases. If, if someone like me was to say, okay, well, I'll make a rape exception. We'll say it's okay in the case of rape. Then what? It, it, he's still going to be pro-choice in these other cases. And so it's like now you've, you've got to make an argument forget that those exception cases now what about the what about the 99% of abortions that aren't due to rape let's have a conversation about those because that's where most of the most of the issue is so um, fixating I think sometimes on those hard cases is a little bit of a red herring it draws you away from the conversation about where you know most abortions are actually taking place but yeah I agree with you about the the Roe v Wade decision it was it was really a decision about what was what's actually in the Constitution um, and they, you know, they rejected the idea that buried somewhere in the Constitution is the right mm. to, to kill an unwanted child. Now, it does give rise to something else uh, uh, that you touched on. You talked about tolerance. Um, 
The Christian apologist Os Guinness makes the point that for a brief while, tolerance was painted as a great virtue. We needed to tolerate, which is not all, it's an ethic, but it's not a very strong mm. one. It's nowhere near as strong as loving your neighbour, doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Nonetheless, we had tolerance. That was a great catch <laughs> cry. We must be prepared to live with one another's differences even if we disagree with them. Didn't last very long. We're into a new age of absolutism. And as we watch on our television screens, the the whole uh, abortion debate seems loaded with loathing and detestation and, and uh, a desire to absolutely tear down anybody who, who dares to disagree. Um, mm -hmm. It's hardly a civilised debate. It seems to me that tolerance has well and truly run its course. We're into a new age of absolutism. But we still use the word tolerance. We haven't gotten rid of that word. We, you know, the... Uh, I think that some of the most intolerant people around are the ones who are still using the word tolerance the most. Oh, this isn't it. We're all about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And inclusion is a, is a tolerant posture that you're adopting towards different people. Um, but they will literally turn people away in the name of inclusion. Uh, your comedy tour is canceled, sir. You're not welcome here. We're an inclusive comedy club. <laughs> do they even do they even hear themselves? I, I literally saw that the other day. There was a, a comedy tour that was canceled from a comedy club in the name of inclusion. I right. mean, try to wrap your head around that. Yeah, so it goes back to your earlier point. If you're not prepared to uh, have uh, the spotlight of humor and insight, you know, focused on your own absurdities, there's very little to check your pride. There's very little to say, hey, we need to stop and have a bit of a look at ourselves. And that seems to be yeah. one of the things that the new intolerance is doing. It, it encourages, it self-feeds, if you like, the new intolerance, yeah. a sense of self-righteousness that's right. quite, quite pervasive. And problematic. I, I think it's, it is problematic when we have a lot of people, especially this younger generation being raised, to believe that they have that they have a right to not be offended that trumps your right to speak freely and that they can just shut you up or tear you down or cancel you, deplatform you, get you fired uh, because you said something that hurts their feelings or that they didn't like. Um, you know, I, it's, it's a very entitled and narcissistic and selfish mentality and it doesn't respect what, I, there is actually a true right to speak freely and to think freely. There is not a right to not be offended. No such thing exists. But there's an entire generation of young people who have come to believe that they have that right and that they deserve to live in some kind of a safe space bubble where no one will ever say anything that's offensive to them. Meanwhile, they're perfectly willing to go around offending everybody that they come into contact with, with their own views and values. Um, so I, I think that's deeply problematic. And, and what it's done is it's raised a bunch of, you know, childish, uh, hypersensitive bullies, which is just, you know, not a healthy thing to have adults running around who haven't grown out of that. Yeah, well, you even see the T-shirts on the beach now. Uh, we no longer do adulting. I don't do adulting. <laughs> yeah, uh, come on. Yeah. Um, yeah pr prior generations would just shake their heads in disbelief. Particularly those who have paid great sacrifices for our freedoms. Yeah. And we don't yeah. even seem to celebrate that anymore. It's extraordinary. No, we do not celebrate our heroes let alone our faith, the faith of our forebears. It's as though all right. wisdom lives in this age. Yeah. Great well, that's, uh, that's another, that's another C.S. Lewis concept, chronological snobbery, he called it, <laughs> yeah. where you think that, that today the, the ideas of the present are somehow uh, far greater and superior than those of the past. Mm. And I think that you know, one, of the, one of the jobs of the the Christian conservative is to keep continually be trying to restore those timeless truths and values that the present is, is trying to uh, tear down and demolish. Um, and that is a ongoing battle. It's like trying to, I, I, uh, Chesterton was talking about how the, the conservative's job, if you, if you have a post that's painted white and you want to keep it white, you can't just let it be. If you just let it be, then eventually the, the elements will deteriorate it and it will become a black post. It will, it will change over time. If you want to keep it the same color that it is, you have to continually be painting it as the elements try to tear away at that paint. Um, so to be, to be a conservative Christian in this world, in my view, is to be constantly painting the post. I understand what you're saying. Tell me, 
Conservatives often talk about, or say they champion beauty and art uh, and good literature and what have you. It doesn't seem that there's a lot of artistic expression from the conservative side of the divide. And it seems, on the other hand, that the left or the progressive left has really come to dominate the creative landscape, whether it's popular music, whether it's movies, the visual arts, what have you. Mm. Why has this come to be? Because so much of it's dark and it's now as we see um, being rejected too by the people. You know, you're seeing a lot of box office flops, if I can put it that way, from the really progressive side. Where's the matching, uh, you know, um, if you like, pushback from, uh, from the right of centre? Hmm. I, I think that it's coming, potentially. I hope that it is. Uh, there are a lot of people on the right who are who are understanding that we need to, we can't just complain about the direction things are going in. We have to build new things. And like I said earlier, when I was talking about that idea that we don't just need more Christian books, we need more good books written by Christians. Mm -hmm. I think that applies whether you whether you're talking about Christians or conservatives. Um, we need more good media made by conservatives, but not but not conservative media. It's media made by conservatives, and that's the distinction that's yep. important because the the the, pro, the the left what the left is doing right now with Disney and a lot of these things where they're trying to bash you over the head with their values is they're preaching at you rather than trying to entertain you. They're trying to convert you rather than just merely trying to entertain you. And I don't think that either side should really be doing that. If you want something to be, if you want broad appeal entertainment, it just needs to have a, it needs to be great storytelling. Um, and it can have values. It can have a certain value. Like the movie Braveheart, for example, has, I think, powerful messages in terms of, you know, morals and values and just war and all of these kinds of things, love. and um, but, but it isn't beating you over the head with a certain religion or political viewpoint. It's just trying to tell a timeless story of love and revenge and whatever. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think any time either side loses sight of, our, our goal here needs to be to make great art and entertainment. And they focus too much on we need to make Christian movies or we need to make conservative movies or we need to make progressive movies and we need to force our tolerance down everyone's throat. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's where people get into trouble with the entertainment stuff. And so there will be a correction to that because as you as you referenced, you know, a lot of this stuff that's coming now out of the Hollywood entertainment machine um, turns off a lot of people because it's too preachy and it's trying to shove values down people's throats that they don't want. So I think that will correct itself with the box office numbers. Eventually, they're going to have to decide, do we want to make money or do we want to win the culture war? Mm. We live in the age of this extraordinary thing called fact-checking, Seth. Um, <laughs> I, you, Familiar with that. Yeah, I figured you would be. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you've had some fairly ridiculous and uh, even hilariously funny outcomes from so-called fact-checking. Um, can you give us a feel for how it's played out for you? How it works in America, fact-checking, and how it's worked out for you? We started experiencing fact-checking, uh, which is kind of a ridiculous thing because we're a comedy site, right? We, we do satire, so why in the world are we being fact-checked? That's a good question. I, I, um, we did a joke about how CNN had purchased an industrial-sized washing machine in the news and before publishing it, which is just a ridiculous, absurd joke with this visual where you've got a, an industrial washing machine with a CNN logo on it, as if you could actually spin the news in a spin. Like, it doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. It's just a silly, silly joke. Um, and Snopes, a, a fact-checking outlet, you know, rated it false and Facebook threatened to take our page down if we continue to share false stories. And we're like, what is going on? This is a, a washing machine joke, you know? Um, we've had a lot of that where we'll, we'll tell these absurd jokes, you know, like the Ninth Circuit Court overturns the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, or something like that. And it's just a silly, absurd joke. Of course, you can't overturn somebody's death. It's it's satire. And uh, in USA Today fact-checked it and rated it false, and we got another warning. So, I mean, we've had a lot of these, these fact-checks, and they've actually impacted our business because Facebook, if you get fact-checked too many times, Facebook starts ditching you in the algorithm. They don't want you showing to people because you're a purveyor of misinformation. You're spreading misinformation or disinformation on the Internet. And so we started to get this reputation for being not legitimate satirists, 
but an actual misinformation hub that was trafficking in misinformation under the guise of satire. Those are the exact words of a New York Times reporter when they did a profile on us. They said we were trafficking in misinformation, writing these silly jokes that the fact checkers are rating false. And so, uh, you know, what you can try to figure out the reasoning behind any of it, but I think that humor is a very effective tool in the in these conversations, these political debates, these culture wars, and um, and you know, so they brought they they tried to to uh, paint us with that misinformation brush so that they could censor what we had to say and limit its reach, which I think was just egregious and ultimately laughable because the jokes they were censoring were just silly. Yeah, but I think it underlines something that worries me enormously, this drift towards authoritarianism, even totalitarianism. We ought to recognise that authoritarian governments, totalitarian regimes have always loathed mockery. They've always yeah. loathed the sort of satire that's been a feature of healthy democracy where you prick balloons and bad ideas. They've always wanted to silence those who start out humorously pointing to error uh, and you end up with a real cost to freedom. Yeah, they want state controlled media so they can promote their propaganda, their narrative. Um, and they don't want anybody to challenge or criticize that narrative. And and the job of the comedian, if the comedian is really doing his job, because what, what comedians do so well is um, you hear that phrase punching up, you know, jokes should punch up, they shouldn't punch down. I disagree with that whole concept of punching down, but, but I do agree that the comedians uh, have a responsibility, like they're not going to be funny unless they're holding power accountable and challenging the powers that be and pointing out their hypocrisy and poking holes in those popular narratives, whatever they are. Um, so yeah, I think, I think comedy for that comedy done right is constantly looking to poke holes in the narrative. And that's why it's such a threat to the, the tyrants who don't want that narrative challenged. So it's one of the first things that they try to shut down. Uh, a very interesting example of the sort of challenges that you faced, I understand. Uh, last year, uh, the Babylon Bee was suspended from Twitter because of a headline deemed to be hate speech. Uh, what happened there and, and why didn't you take it down? I don't think, I think you decided not to take it down. Can you tell us a bit yeah. about that? Yeah, so what it, what had happened, so, you know, we've got the, the, the gender debate that's happening right now, you know, the gender ideology that's um, so popular and pervasive. Um, and, and you've got situations where USA Today had named uh, Rachel Levine, who's a, a, a health admiral in the Biden administration. Um, Rachel Levine was named Woman of the Year by USA Today. And Rachel Levine is a male person, a biologically male person, so but identifies as a woman. So this was a male person who is being given an award for women. And, you know, that itself, from my perspective, is a joke. I think that's a, it's it, it, any any prior generation would have thought that was absurd and insane. But this generation thinks it's perfectly normal and fine and legitimate. Um, I think I think women everywhere should be deeply offended by that. We can't be giving women's awards to male persons. So we decided, well, what's the best way for us to address this from a satirical standpoint where we reinforce the truth of like we actually reinforce reality with a joke here. So what we what we decided to do was write a headline that said Rachel Levine was the Babylon Bee's pick for man of the year. And um Twitter didn't like that very much. They, yeah, they, they, they considered that hateful conduct because it was uh, misgendering. We used a, a, we used a gender reference for this person that conflicts with their preferred or chosen self-identification. So um, misgendering is hateful conduct. Hateful conduct is a, a violation. They wanted us to delete the tweet. And if we deleted the tweet, we could have our account back. They didn't like permanently suspend us right off the bat. And we said, no, we're not deleting the tweet because we think that this joke, we should be allowed to make a joke like this. You know, you're you're trying to, with your policies, you're trying to make it so that you can only say that two and two make five, and you're not allowed to say that two and two make four. Well, we insist that two and two make four, and it's a joke, by the way. Um, but we're not going to delete it. So, you know, if that means that we never tweet again, then so be it. So we refuse to, we refuse to take the joke down, and Twitter refused to allow us back into our account. 
Um, they made a final decision on that. And so we sat in Twitter jail for eight months until Elon Musk bought the company and set us free. <laughs> well, that is an extraordinary story, I have to say. Um, yeah. It is often said that the first casualty of censorship is humour. And just to go back to uh, you know, this, this point about authoritarian regimes, and, and that seems to me to be the reason that in places like the Soviet Union, jokes ridiculing the state were severely punished. And, and this is what worries me. We're drifting down that road. But what do you think history teaches us about the subversive power of humour and its role in a, in a healthy society? This seems to be a really important point to get up and to have understood more broadly. Well... Just speaking in censor, about censorship in general terms, you know, the, the way I put it is this, you know, censorship is designed, it's, it's, it's a tool used by authoritarians, you're absolutely right, authoritarian regimes, and censorship guards the narrative, not the truth. And it actually guards the narrative at the expense of the truth. And so um, I think that's very important for people to understand because it's, we use the word misinformation so much. Um, but but they're not actually after misinformation. They're after they're after opinions they don't like and facts that run counter to their narrative. So they're often uh, censoring the truth in their effort to curb the spread of misinformation, which is just completely insane and backwards. And so we have to be very 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 clear about what censorship is actually trying to accomplish. Um, they are, they are not concerned with the truth. They, are, they want to make sure that you can only, you must either say the things they want you to say or say nothing at all. We were in a situation where with this hateful conduct policy, we have to either um, promote the popular narrative that Rachel Levine actually is a woman and deserves these awards that, that should be given to women um, or remain silent, not say anything at all. But we can't challenge it, even in jest. That's not allowed. You're not allowed to do that. So... Um, but in that, but that's exactly why it's important for us to challenge it in jest, is because that is a dangerous place to be in, where you have, um, and in in here in, in the states, what we've seen is there's actual collusion between the government, state actors, and these third-party platforms that basically host the public square to control what you're allowed to say and think. Um, that's a very dangerous place to be in, and so I think that because humor is very effective. Uh, uh, let's. I'll quote Chesterton again. He's got so many good quotes, but he said, "Humor can get in under the door, while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle." And I love that quote. I think it's it speaks to why humor is disarming. You wrap your message in a package of humor, and it's very easily delivered and received. Tyrants know that; they fear that. Um, and so, you know, it's one of the reasons why they go after the the comedians, the satirists, the jesters first and foremost. Are you able to use the law effectively in America? We hear a lot about how the American Constitution defends the right of people to say, speak their mind in an age of the internet, as we've been talking about it. Are you able to effectively, in your view, use the law to defend your, your right to free speech in America today? I think you're suing uh, California, aren't you? Um, over uh, laws that they're proposing, and we have a similar problem in Australia confronting us right now, laws that set out apparently to outlaw misinformation and uh, disinformation. The big question yeah. there being who decides what's disinformation and misinformation? The answer to that is no. We're not able to effectively use the law right now. And the, and the problem is um, the law is designed, you know, that. Our, our laws are the, the guarantee that we have, the, the free speech protections that we have, the First Amendment is designed to protect us against where censorship normally came from historically, which was the government. You know, it's, it's, to, it's to prevent the government and the state from controlling your speech or curbing your speech or chilling your speech. Um, but that's not where censorship primarily happens right now because the, the world has gone digital. And so we, our laws haven't really caught up to the fact that the vast majority of public discourse now takes place on privately owned digital platforms. And so the town square is no longer a physical place in your town where the government can't censor you, the state, the, the county, whoever, they can't interfere with your speech rights. It's now this 
online platform managed by a privately owned company and the and the argument is that they're privately owned they can do whatever they want and so the question is well maybe that's the way that it is but is it the way that it should be should private companies be able to just do whatever they want should they be able to promise you free expression without barriers that's in twitter's mission statement by the way free expression without barriers should they be able to promise you that and not actually deliver it is that not fraud and should they have some responsibility to allow for free speech if they are in fact hosting with the de facto town square where public discourse is taking place? Should our laws catch up to the fact that that's where the vast majority of speech is taking place, where people are speaking and being heard? And if you're silenced there, you're effectively silenced, period. Um, I think the answer to that is yes, our laws should be updated to reflect that. And so I think we need speech protections there. I don't, I don't think I think there's plenty of precedent for um, holding private companies accountable for the promises they make to their users. If they're going to promise free expression, they should give it. And I think there's also plenty of precedent for making sure that privately owned companies don't discriminate against people unlawfully. You know, a, tra a train service, for example, can't discriminate against people of a certain race and tell them that they can't ride on that train. They are they they have to accommodate you. Um, why why should the public square of the digital age? Be able to discriminate against people because they're conservative you know because they're trump supporters or something like that you know it's they shouldn't they shouldn't be allowed to even if they currently are and so the question is how should things be um i don't think that the, the first amendment really does us much good if the places where we're speaking it doesn't apply so i think the law needs to catch up to that almost impossible to imagine a circumstance where it could catch up though because everyone's so polarized you'd never get agreement on what those laws would look like i think that's a this is a very concerning problem in australia we've got proposals here uh, for new laws right. against misinformation and disinformation uh, and it emerges to all effects and uh, and purposes that whatever the government says would never be misinformation uh, or, yeah. or or or, or uh, you know whatever yeah. And How naive do you have to be to believe that? It's really quite concerning. The where where it will where it's coming to a head here is we have there are state laws now that have been put into place to protect against discrimination, viewpoint discrimination, basically on these platforms. Say, look, the platforms can have moderation policies. They can they can say that lewd and indecent conduct conduct is not allowed, uh, for example. But they can't, they can't just take you down because they don't like what you had to say, your opinion. You should be able to share your opinion. You should be able to speak freely. There are laws that are trying to protect against viewpoint discrimination, and they're being challenged. You know, so in some cases, we, we actually have, um, uh, I think it was the Fifth Circuit Court upheld a law in Texas. The Eleventh Circuit Court shot down a law like that in Florida. And so you have a circuit split, they call it, where the two circuit courts disagree about whether these laws are constitutional. And what that means is it's almost certainly going to go to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to now decide which state gets it right, which of these laws, you know, which of these rulings is correct and what in terms of what's constitutional. And so we may end up, up in a place where the Texas law, which uh, which was upheld by the Fifth Circuit, gets upheld at the Supreme Court level, in which case states can then pass laws saying that these platforms can't discriminate against people. So we may have a solution coming through those channels. Do you think that the drift towards individual autonomy, you know, the idea that autonomy is the greatest virtue of all, the supremacy of the individual carried to the nth degree, I am who I am because I feel this way, this is how I identify, my body is my private property, I will do with it as I like, no higher authority will declare that I am a man or a woman or whatever, is now leading to a sort of situation of such atomization that the splits we're seeing in our society become impossible to overcome. We emphasize our individuality and the things that divide us to such an extent we can never find common ground again. You paint a very dire picture. Are you a cynical person? <laughs> uh, I, I would say a worried citizen, uh, you know, yeah. very concerned that we constantly yeah. emphasize the things that divide us. Uh, yeah. rather than the things that I we think have you're in right. common. I think you're right. We do. Uh, just a, a comment on that idea that autonomy is so important. Well, what about mask mandates and vaccine mandates? Where, where's, the, where's the my body, my choice now, you know? Um, well, the people Roger who Scruton, shout the loudest. Yeah. As Roger Scruton said, the idea that every man can be an island, well, he didn't use that expression, but that's what he was referring to, I think you'd say. 
you know, it, it, it's a nonsense to pretend, for example, that you can live your life on your own. Um, adults made way for you, both conveniently and inconveniently, when you were born and made enormous sacrifices so that you could be brought into the world and, and then raised and educated and sent out into the world. We are interdependent. And yet, mm -hmm. increasingly, the great virtue today is to say we're not interdependent. I will do absolutely mm -hmm. as I choose, when I choose. Um, right. And, this and I, that goes so back to what I was saying before. There's a, great, there's a deep selfishness and narcissism in all of that. Yeah. Um, and and part, of the reason, part of the reason I think what we're doing is so important is because we're continuing to speak truth into the culture on issues exactly like this. That is not the way. It's, 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 a, it's a destructive path. It's a path that leads you down, uh, it, it leads you away from reality itself, where you actually started to begin de denying the truth about who you were made to be. You start denying you're born in a male body, you start denying that you're a man and saying, nope, you know, I, my autonomy is, is such that I can actually say I'm a woman when I'm in a man's body. Um, you know, you start going down this path where, where reality itself gets left in the dust and, and when we start talking about what's what's actually progress, what does progress mean? Do we we all want progress, right? Well, I you'll you'll have to forgive me. I quote C.S. Lewis and Chesterton all day long, but C.S. Lewis said that progress means, uh, you know, when you're on the wrong when you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and going back to find the right road, and the person who turns back soonest is the most progressive. Well, if we're going to be progressive in this day and age. It means turning back and going back and finding the right road, not continuing down this path, um, leaving reality behind us. Well, Seth, thanks. Um, just a, a couple to round up. I, I, I'm told that you're, you've been heavily involved in faith-driven startups and entrepreneurialism. Uh, why, why do you think Christian entrepreneurialism is so important today? As I understand, you, you, you see it to be. Yeah, uh, well, I guess for the same reason that that all, all of what we're talking about is important because you know you've it's it's a matter of it's a matter of um, of creating and building on a foundation of truth, as I see it. Um, and the more that the more that we're encouraging and facilitating that, the better society will be for it. The more flourishing we'll see. Um, so, I I strongly encourage Christians to be um uh to to start their own businesses to to uh to be creative um but again not just more christian books yeah. or conservative books but good books yeah good books yeah it's almost the augustinian idea uh, you know uh, uh, uh preach often uh, uh with words if you need to if necessary if exactly necessary. Yeah. yeah use words if if you absolutely have to yeah and, and finally, you know, as, as I look on America, a country I've admired in so many ways, the leader of the free world, really, um, incre increasingly divided down the middle. Um, you really, in many ways, I think you'd have to say, are appealing for a return to, if you like, the values and the worldview that made America what it is today in an age when massive forces are trying to pull it away from its roots. A very broad question, what gives you hope? Do you see evidence that there are enough Americans saying, this is ridiculous to use your C.S. Lewis remarks a moment ago, we need to turn back, we need to refine yeah. our, our foundations? Well, one thing that gives me hope is that I see a lot of people standing up and speaking the truth boldly, even if it might cost them something. And the other thing is, I see, I see people taking it way too far. and. And the fact that we've gone so far in the wrong direction, it's gotten so extreme, some of these ideas, um, and, and including ideas that impact children, which is what has parents standing up in school board meetings and getting all animated and, and excited about these things. People are starting to wake up and see that we are on the, ro on the wrong road. So um, it actually gives me hope. The fact that things have gone so if 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 the secular progressive left was was advancing more slowly and gradually, they would be much more effective, I think, than by uh, trying to take everything by force so aggressively all at once. Because what they do is they end up waking up everybody who was kind of asleep to the change that was happening, and they and they and they 
provoke a response. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the response that's provoked is strong enough that the pendulum swings back the other way in the direction of reason and reality and truth. I heard recently of some research in America, and um, I couldn't point directly to where it came from, but it sounded very concerning, that around 75% of baby boomer Americans will say, I'm proud to be American, but it drops mm. to below 20% for Americans under the age of 25. That's a pretty seismic shift as an outsider looking at America where we've often thought that patriotism is one of the great driving forces. It suggests a real loss of confidence in, in, in their country by young Americans. And yeah, the education system has failed them. Um, their parents have failed them. Yeah, they're, they're being raised to hate the country that they're in. They're being raised to hate the, the color of their own skin and, the, and you know, their, their history. Um, and the, they're, they're being taught the inversion of real values. And so I, I, a lot of times I, I see it as it's not just that there's a, a competing value system. It's almost like an anti-value system that's being ingrained in a lot of these uh, young people. Um, so counteracting that, what better way to do that than to ridicule bad ideas and to create great entertainment that's, that they're going to enjoy, that's going to subtly, like humor slipping in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle, get the message across. Thanks so much for your time, Seth. Yeah, great thank fun. you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.